Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about time in the market versus timing the market, which is really how long you invest for versus when you invest. And look, most people are probably familiar with the saying that uh, time in the market is way more important than timing the market. Uh, And I I think it's very true that holding quality assets for many decades uh, masks any sort of small imperfections uh, with respect to timing. Uh, But that's not to suggest that timing the market is actually not important at all. And in fact, uh, for some asset classes, it's more important than for others. But it would be a mistake to think that timing is irrelevant. Uh, So obviously, most of us realise that many markets move in cycles. And I guess to generalise, you know, markets can go from being overvalued, and that will happen uh, typically through a boom cycle. Uh, They can be undervalued, typically, again, when there's a a bust cycle or a lot of negativity. And uh, when it moves between boom and bust, uh, sometimes it can be uh, fairly valued. Uh, And that's really the the market cycles, uh, the As an example of uh, bad timing, if you had invested in the NASDAQ index, so that's the US uh, tech uh, stock index, or at least it's dominated by a lot of tech stocks, uh, in November last year, November 2021, you would have lost about 30% uh, to date. So, you know, that's a bit of a lesson in poor timing. And really, if you invested $100 in November, your $100 would be worth $70. Uh, and really what you need is a 43% return now to get back to $100 again, so break even. So if you're starting your investment journey 43% behind, uh, it really um, doesn't matter how long you hold that investment, you're, you're always going to underperform because of that poor timing. Uh, it's worth noting, by the way, that uh, probably every single fundamental indicator has suggested that NASDAQ has been overvalued for quite some time. Uh, of course, uh, bull markets can last a lot longer than any of us can expect, uh, and really it does invite people to ignore those fundamental inde- indicators, but uh, I guess they can't ignore them any longer. So if we know that markets move in cycles then, then it stands to reason that we should invest in markets when they're undervalued uh, and potentially divest or reduce our exposure uh, when markets are overvalued. Uh, and that takes advantage of the power of mean reversion, Uh, which suggests that in the long run, all returns revert to their mean or average, uh, which means that uh, periods of underperformance are generally followed by periods of outperformance, and also the reverse is true. I did a a podcast on uh, mean reversion last year, so you can certainly check that one out. Now, as I said at the beginning, there's some asset classes where timing is less important, Uh, So let's talk about investment-grade property, and uh, for those that uh, haven't been listening to the podcast for very long, I must define what I mean by investment-grade property, because I'm not talking about, you know, all property in Australia. Uh, Really, what we're talking about is property that has produced a solid capital growth rate over a very long period of time. Uh, These properties tend to be underpinned by a very strong land value component and have plenty of scarcity, scarcity in terms of architectural style, but also scarcity in terms of locality. So they're located in, tend to be in, uh, you know, really well-established blue chip uh, locations. 
and as such benefit from excessive demand. So de demand for those assets always exceeds uh, supply. Um, property is a lot less volatile than shares, uh, about half the rate of vo volatility, in fact. And I suspect that the reason there's two reasons or two main reasons uh, for that, there's probably lots of reasons. Um, and the first one is, firstly, property is a necessity. You know, we all need a roof over our, over our heads. It's not a discretionary asset for most of us, particularly owner-occupiers, of course. Unlike shares or bonds or, you know, other sorts of investments, uh, they're, they're not necessities. Uh, we can turn around and sell them tomorrow. And secondly, and interrelated, uh, due to high transactional costs, so I'm talking about agent fees, stamp duty, etc., etc., property isn't traded in you know bought and sold in the same way that shares are and i think these two things conspire uh, to producing a much lower volatility rate so as an example if you look at uh, the median house price in melbourne uh, using uh, data from the real estate institute of australia since 1980 the volatility rate is 9.1 percent um the average growth over that same period uh, is 8.3%. So that's really from the beginning of 1980 to the end of 2021, uh, that data covers. Uh, so therefore, two-thirds of the time that you invest in property, your return, your annual capital return, will be between 1% and 17%, which is really the average growth rate of 8.3%, plus or minus the volatility rate, uh, which is 9.1%. Uh, and 95% of the time, your annual return will be between minus 10% and positive 26%. Uh, again, that's two standard deviations, so plus and minus two times the volatility rate. So it shows that the NASDAQ example, where we invest in November and we lost 30%, and we can't really make up for that loss, that is very unlikely to occur in the property market, at least based on the last 40 years of data. Now, uh, that obviously compares favourably to all share markets, really. Uh, you know, share market volatility rates tend to range about 18 to sort of 20%. So, you know, as I said, double or sometimes more than double what uh, uh, property is. Uh, therefore, two-thirds of the time, so around plus or minus one standard deviation, uh, two-thirds of the time, your share returns are going to be between uh, a loss of 11% and a gain of 28%, which is a really big range. Um, and again, if you look at 95% of the time, it's going to be a loss of 30% or a gain of 50%. Again, a really big range. And where you have that really large volatility, um, uh, timing starts to become uh, more important. Now, in the past, I've charted, you know, the distribution of capital growth in property markets, and I've shared those charts previously. Again, I have a link on the blog, in the blog on the website and in the show notes, so you can have a look at that chart. But really, what we can see is property tends to ebb and flow between two cycles. It's either going through a growth cycle or a flat cycle. Uh, those cycles tend to last between, say, six to ten years. So you can have six to ten years of relatively or above average growth which tend to be followed by six to 10 years of virtually no growth, you know, sort of growing at CPI or even less sometimes. Now, of course, it would be great if you could pick you know, when a property or when a property market, a geographical market is at the beginning of a growth cycle because you don't necessarily want to invest at the beginning of a flat cycle. 
Um, but unfortunately, it, it can sometimes be very hard to pick those cycles. Uh, the key th- thing, though, is as long as you don't invest before a massive drop in any investment, of course, then timing becomes a lot less relevant. So even if you do invest uh, before, you know, just at the start of a very flat cycle, uh, whilst that, you know, look back and go, well, that timing's not perfect, uh, that's when time in the market will be the most important thing, assuming you've bought a fundamentally sound asset, of course. Having said that, sometimes there are indicators when a market uh, might be uh, close to finishing a growth cycle, and, and the typical indicator is where growth is well above the average. So when we, the, the example I gave before, which uh, average growth in Melbourne, uh, meeting house price, 8.3% since 1980. So if we went through a period after five years where the uh, average growth rate over those five years was, say, 12 or 13%, well, you would have to argue that we're getting close to maybe a flat cycle. Uh, whereas if we looked at the last five years and the average growth rate was, say, uh, 2%, uh, well, then you'd think uh, given uh, growth has been so benign for the last five years, we probably, uh, or there's a greater probability of us approaching a growth cycle. So sometimes when you look at those sort of broad-based sort of macro data, it can leave uh, hints to when a market cycle might be approaching, a change in market cycle might be approaching, although it's not a perfect science. Now, that's not to say uh, all property has a low volatility rate. Uh, there are some geographical markets and property types that are more volatile than others. Uh, and again, uh, I, I remind people I'm really just talking about investment-grade property But for example, where there's uh, more discretion around the property, so beachside locations, for example, that are dominated by uh, second homes, you know, not primary residences for people, those markets can show a lot more volatility, which means that uh, instead of uh, the correcting cycle being a flat cycle, uh, sometimes we can see some substantial price falls in those markets, uh, which is kind of a timely bit of advice or observation, if you like, um, given that those uh, beachside locations through COVID have done incredibly well and arguably have enjoyed uh, many years of growth in just the last uh, 18 to 24 months. Now, in the short run, investment timing can actually have a big impact on your returns. So, for example, if I invest in the share market today uh, and there's a slight correction, we lose 5%. Uh, and then it gradually recovers over the coming months. It could be that uh, after six months of holding that investment that I've I've got zero returns, you know, that the market's just recovered. So in that situation, it's not the fundamentals underpinning that investment because it could otherwise be a fantastic investment. It's really just a bit of poor timing. Um, but putting aside uh, small, uh, I guess, errors in timing or, you know, because um, returns are very random, it's very difficult to really call them errors. Um, but those small fluctuations will have an impact on your returns if you hold the investment for six, 12 or even two years. Um, but the longer you hold the investment, it will become absolutely, the timing element will become absolutely immaterial. Again, the only exception is, you know, if you invest before a big correction or a big price drop, uh, and really there's no amount of time that can help you recover. So a a really good example, if you invested in the Australian stock market before the 
87 crash. So if you invested in September 87, uh, you would have lost about 45% of your investment by the time you got to February uh, 1988. Uh, so less than a year, you've lost uh, 45%. It's not a really good start. If you held that investment today, just excluding dividends, you would have earned 3.4% over uh, almost a 35-year period. Uh, that is not a good return. Uh, and again, so it shows you know timing in some asset classes, particularly ones that have more volatility, uh, starts to become uh, more important. So I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, if our approach should be to invest in undervalued markets and then sell when those markets become overvalued, um, that could be a good approach. Well, yes, if you could read market conditions perfectly, you know, if you could buy at the bottom and sell at the top, and you could do that consistently uh, well, you know, accurately, um, then that would be a good strategy. The problem is that... Uh, these things are very hard to call. Bull markets can run a lot longer than you expect, so you miss out on the returns if you sell too soon. Uh, and corrections are typically driven by uh, you know, something that's completely unexpected by definition, uh, so they're often hard to predict. I think a better approach is to reweight your portfolio, so not make uh, really aggressive changes in asset allocation, so I'm all out of shares into property or you know, those sorts of aggressive movements, but really reweight your portfolio and really start thinking, um, how is my money invested and where is the risk? Uh, and if you have, you know, if you have too much invested in a particular sector, then you might start thinking about reducing those investments and reducing your exposure to those markets uh, gradually over time to sort of reweight your portfolio, but not taking really aggressive stances and saying, I, I want zero in those asset classes. So as the saying goes, still spread your eggs among, among various baskets, uh, but maybe have fewer eggs in baskets that you think are overvalued and more eggs in baskets that, are, uh, that you feel are undervalued. So to sum up this uh, episode, I'd like to really leave you with three um, observations or insights maybe. The first one is that small imperfections, timing mistakes if you like, uh, really don't matter as long as you have a fundamentally sound and quality investment and you hold it for long term, so don't stress the small timing mistakes. Secondly, you've got to avoid the big timing mistakes, you know, investing before a 30% or 40% crash um, is problematic and will really ruin uh, you know, future returns. And thirdly, uh, timing is less important for residential property, I would say investment-grade uh, residential property, uh, because of its lower volatility rate and the likelihood of uh, prices dropping by more than 10% after you purchase are very, very unlikely. Therefore, the old adage of time in the market versus time in the market, uh, I would probably change the saying to uh, time in the market is more important than time in the market as long as you don't invest before a crash. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, until next week. Bye for now.